Good evening. I want to welcome the viewers and listeners for tuning in to have this very important conversation. I am Joshua Slocum. My pronouns are he, him. I am a man sitting at this table in a blue camisole here with you, not here, together. And I'm very thankful to the viewers for having this important conversation as we, as I, sit here in front of this camera with you not in front of this camera together. Welcome to Disaffected. Welcome to Disaffected, I'm Joshua Slocum and this is the show where we talk about politics, culture and relationships through a psychological lens. You know what, Kevin? What? Let, let put put up that um, that video loop of uh, Kamala Harris, would you please? Yeah, thank you. <laughs> you saw this, right? You saw her sitting at this table, wearing a blue suit. Ha Is this the real world? Are we actually in a simulation? Are we in a holodeck? A holodeck of extremely stupid people. I, it's every day I see things that I, I was gonna say I can't believe are real, I can't believe they're real, but I r really, really wish they weren't real. There's, I don't have anything else to say about that. Let me, let me tell you about what we're actually gonna talk about on the show. <laughs> oh, we got a lot this week. So, California wants to become a sanctuary state for so-called trans kids. And it wants to strip parents of their rights to say no to chemical mutilation of their children. But it goes even farther than the bill we discussed in Vermont. We're going to do this in detail. Then we're going to ask another question about a fake reality. Is the White House actually doing deep fake videos of the president? And we're going to look at researchers in mental health who continue to disagree over how to evaluate and diagnose personality disorders, but their particular bugbear is borderline personality disorder. And I have thoughts about that. But first, we're going to talk about how black bad behavior is beautiful. We've talked on this show many times about the sacred caste phenomenon. This is when a group achieves what you might call benighted minority status. They're oppressed, they've always been victims, so the left instantly beatifies them. They instantly get a moral halo over their head. Permanent moral halo. They're never aggressors, nothing they do is ever wrong or rude, nothing they do is abusive, they are only ever victims. It doesn't matter who we're talking about, black people, trans people, gay people, women, people of color, disabled people, whoever they are. Everything that such a person says is true. They never lie. And if they do, it's good that they lie. They need to lie because it's a good thing and a real, real fine thing. This is just as true today for black people as it has been true for trans people. And I'm going to say the things that many people know are true 
and are absolutely terrified to say. I understand why they're terrified to say them. I've been terrified to say them, but there's no more time to be terrified to say things. We don't say things now. The pain is going to be a lot worse in the future. So you had better get over your terror about saying this. White people, I'm talking to you. I know you don't want to, especially if you're on the left and or, or, or formerly on the left. You still have that emotional contamination reaction. Again, I understand it. It was only a couple of years ago, maybe within the past year and a half, that I was able to get over it with this topic in particular. So I get where you're coming from. Let's start out by looking at a story that I took from the Gateway Pundit, but it relies mainly on reporting from the New York Post. And I want to say something first about the sources that we use on this show. Kevin's listening to this and saying, this isn't in the script. (laughs) I have a theory about tabloid newspapers and magazines. Well, maybe not a theory, a hypothesis. Tabloid magazines, tabloid newspapers have always been derided. They sell like hotcakes, of course, because they're the original clickbait before we clicked. But people have always talked them down and said they're lurid, they're over the top, they're trashy. And yes, sometimes they absolutely are, especially with their celebrity coverage. I mean, they just go hog wild with that stuff. But when it comes to reporting on crimes, particularly the kinds of vicious crimes that people don't like to talk about or that they only like to hear about once in a while in a documentary or a true crime or a made-for-TV movie, you see these much more in the tabloids. And I have to tell you, I've read mainstream media and listen to mainstream media most of my life, I now find myself turning to outlets like the New York Post and, yes, um, be ready to gasp and scold. Also, the Daily Mail in the UK. Yes, I know all the problems with it. I, too, like you, see when they go over the top. But when it comes to talking about politically unpopular problems like transing children, like the fact that so-called trans women are actually men and they're being put in women's prisons and they are raping women. You get this in the tabloids and you do not get it in the mainstream media. So my hypothesis is it may be that the picture you get about things like domestic violence, public violence, and things like this may in fact be more accurate from the trashy, sleazy tabloids than they are from the mainstream press. Well, it's, it's, it's a low bar, isn't it? Right? I mean, you can't trust anything in the New York Times. So let's get into that story. Thank you for listening to my digression. This is a story from the Gateway Pundit. New York police are looking for three black women suspected of attacking a white woman on the bus. First quote, the victim Jill LaCroix was taken to a Jamaica hospital where she received staples on her head to close up the laceration after this bus attack. LaCroix, a 57-year-old grandmother who has three biracial children, told the New York Post that one of her attackers accused her of being a Trump supporter. You know, I had a conversation with a colleague the other day who was just... I think just beginning to notice and understand that my views have turned more conservative than when he met me 10, 15 years ago. One of the first things he said, and I've heard this from many people, you're not a Trumpster, are you? It's emotionally reflexive. They don't even know what they mean. I don't know what a Trumpster is, but I do know that that is code for you're not morally contaminated, are you? Back to the story. 
The Queen's bus rider assaulted in an alleged anti-white crime told the Post on Sunday that one of her attackers accused her of being a fan of former President Donald Trump before the assailants bashed her on the head. Here's another quote. <clears throat> the one with the green hair, she was saying, <laughs> of course one of the attackers had green hair. The one with the green hair, she was saying she hates white people the way they talk. She hates white skin the way their skin cracks, saying she was gangsta, said the bartender. Jill LaCroix is a bartender who was headed to visit her mother at the time. Quote, before they hit me, the girl with the green hair said, you probably like Trump, don't you? LaCroix recalled. I said, I love him. I didn't see which one hit me first. I was, on, I was the only white person on the bus. By the time we started passing St. John's Cemetery in Woodhaven, she started in on me saying, that's where I'm going to bury you. Now, some people may accuse me after watching this of cherry picking the stories that I'm going to share with you tonight because I hate black people and I want to show up black people particularly. That is, of course, retarded. But let me tell you why I'm talking about this. We have gone from a society in which black people were legally and culturally shit on and oppressed. This is not controversial. From that society, we've gone to a society where black people today are culturally allowed and sometimes by default legally to harass, demean, and shit on white people to get their own back. People who have never lived under slavery, people who have never lived during Reconstruction, people who never lived through Jim Crow, and never lived through anything before the 1964 Civil Rights Act. White people send me private messages on a variety of platforms pretty frequently telling me that they get bad treatment from black people today much more in America than they can ever remember before, just in everyday interactions, but that they can only tell me this privately, and they're glad that I say this on the show. And, and that's part of, I see that as part of my job, if you will, on the show, is, is to say things that other people are afraid to say, but I do it for a couple of reasons. I do it because I think that it needs to be heard by the public, but I'm also doing it because when I add my voice to this, I am one more person who's willing to say it in public, and hopefully I've moved your comfortability meter just a little bit further along. So I guess what I'm saying here is, the point of this is not for Joshua Slocum to always say these things. Joshua Slocum says these things because I want you to take on your duty and your responsibility too, viewers and listeners, okay? I'm willing to open the door for you, I'm willing to walk through the door and be the first one through, and I will hold the door for you. But I'm not going to be the only person who walks through the door. I'm not going to save you. Dave Rubin isn't going to save you. Ben Shapiro isn't going to save you. Matt Walsh isn't going to save you. Don't think of people like that. And no, of course, I'm not classing myself in the same tier as those guys. They're far, far above me. I understand that. But we share similar views. We can't save you. All of us have to save each other. And, and, and when people message me, you know, they say they can't even be seen to complain when they're abused because that would be complaining about a black person and merely complaining about a black person 
is itself racism. No, it's not. What it is, is a cluster B dynamic, a narcissistic abuse dynamic that we are all participating in and we're all playing a role within. The abuser is the saint, and when the victim defends herself, her act of self-defense is the assault. Her objection to being hit is the assault. That's the reversal. That's my mother. Go back to, I know, I know, go back to any episode, but particularly go back to the Over the Borderline episode, the two-parter I did last year, and I told you about how when my mother would haul me out of bed in the middle of the night and go through the dish drainer to see if I'd wash the dishes properly and she'd find something wrong and she'd look at the dish and say, does this look clean to you? She would grab me by my shoulders and shake me. You know, I'm a little kid who's, who's been hauled out of bed and she's physically shaking me while she screams in my face, why are you doing this to me? Why are you doing this to me? My objection, my fear, was an assault on her. That's what's going on here. Again, cluster B is totalitarianism and narcissism and Machiavellianism and fascism. And it begins in the home and it is a practice run. It is not different when it spills out into society. It's not like what happens in the home. It is an example of. Example of, not oddly like. Let's go to North Carolina for an example of administrative violence, women's specialty. This one comes from the Daily Mail, which I know you'd never ever touch because it's just really, it's really not trustworthy. Okay. <laughs> it's too early for the voice. <laughs> it's really for the voice. What is it, 5.30 as we tape this? Okay. <clears throat> from the Daily Mail. The entire staff of a small North Carolina, North Carolina Police Department has suddenly resigned, citing a hostile work environment created by the town's newly elected manager. The mass exodus transpired Wednesday and saw five cops, including the former chief of 20 years, hand in resignation letters to the town manager and city council. The maneuver left the town of Kenley, home to 2,000 residents, with just three part-time officers to man the waning force. Now, the story is light on details because none of the people who quit and gave in their resignation obviously feel culturally allowed to say explicitly what the behavior of the town manager was, in large part because the town manager is a black woman, I am quite certain. Here's one statement from the former chief who just resigned, 20 years by the way. I put in my two weeks notice along with the whole police department with the town of Kenley after 21 years of service, he wrote. The new manager has created an environment I do not feel we can perform our duties and services to the community. I do not know what is next for me. I am letting the Lord lead the way. Back to the article. They, the, pol uh, the police who quit, were joined by two town clerks who also accused the new manager, a progressive black woman who unsuccessfully sued her previous employer for gender and racial discrimination. We're going to come back to that. Those accusations came after she had been terminated. So she made those accusations against the last town she worked for after she was fired. And her suit was subsequently dismissed. The manager, Justine Jones, was hired last month, nearly eight years after her firing, 
an acquisition the town touted in a press release at the time. I'm betting it did. Here's a picture of Justine Jones, the town manager of Kenley, North Carolina, although I predict not for much longer. Quote, Jones, a middle-aged black woman, sued her previous employer, Richland County, South Carolina, for gender and racial discrimination after her firing. The suit says she worked as a manager of research and was an assistant director. During her tenure with the county, she alleged hostile treatment by and retaliation for reporting bad behavior by other city workers and that she was not paid fairly and was treated differently due to illness. The suit did not specify what illness she was referring to. I can't tell you what this is about with any certainty, of course, but I can tell you what it smells like. And it smells like Cluster B. It smells like a narcissist. Think back to last week when we talked about the possible correlation between Cluster B and IQ. And I said that I've seen people all along the IQ spectrum who fall into the personality disorder category. This smells like a narcissist of middling intelligence at best. Big fish, small pond, moving from place to place, possibly leaving a trail of destruction. Justine Jones used to work for Richland County, South Carolina, until she was fired in 2015. More from the article. Jones was fired on March 30th, 2015, months before the suit was filed, her suit against them alleging discrimination, and the lawsuit was dismissed later that year. Court records do not reveal on what grounds the case was dismissed. Jones was selected by the Kenley Town Council after a, quote, nationwide search of 30 candidates, officials said in a press release last month. She just got hired last month, folks. She's worked in public service for the past 16 years, all in local governments. Aside from being fired from her job in Richland County, she worked at her own consulting company before being enlisted for her current position early last month. So we've got a parade of jobs in small town government for 16 years. She gets fired from the last job. She then sues that last job, Richland County, claiming gender and racial discrimination and not getting paid enough. Do you actually believe that a woman administrator, a female, in city government in the United States of America in the 21st century is likely to be the victim of gender discrimination? That she's going to be a victim of a gender pay gap? Why, if you do, why do you believe that? Women own this field, just like they own human resources as a field. Have you been to city government lately? Anywhere. Winooski, Vermont, Burlington, Vermont, anywhere across the country. Walk into the town clerk's office. Who is in charge? Women. Overwhelmingly women. I don't believe this for a moment. I want to tell you a couple of personal stories about why this topic is exercising me enough to bring it up to you on the show. I've been sitting on these for a while, second-guessing myself, but here I am. I have noticed, I don't know how many years it's been, it certainly has gotten worse in the past five or six years, the years of woke. 
But I have noticed over time recently, the everyday on the street or in a store interactions with American black people, this is very important, Americans, not people with black skin, black Americans, that the interactions with them have been getting more and more hostile, that there is more and more attitude being projected from the black person to the white person. I've seen it happen to me. I've seen it happen to other people. I watch it happen. It's real. I'm not making it up. There's a hostility. There's a there's an attitude. And if you walk through the poorer towns, the poorer parts of town, yep. You can see it on people's faces. You can see the facial expression. Very common. Very common African-American facial expression these days. Lower on the class ladder. Almost like sullen, aggrieved, borderline expression. So two stories. About a year and a half ago, when I was doing uh, deliver, I was a DoorDash driver for extra money several nights a week. And I got a lot of orders from uh, kids at University of Vermont, obviously college kids ordering food delivery. And I pulled up to the back end of a dorm that had one of those uh, circles, a driveway circle so that you could pull in, it, uh, like on Parents' Day that everybody would pull in, unload their furniture, uh, pull back out. But it was a circle that had two lanes. It had a lane that you could pull over and stand or park, but it also had a travel lane so that people could get by you. So I pulled up there, I delivered the food, and I see uh, a really expensive, I don't remember if it was a BMW, it was, it was about a $90,000 brand new car though, sitting in the travel lane. So I'm here on the right, they're sitting in the travel lane next to me, and there's a car parked in front of me. I'm literally boxed in. And, and these guys have been sitting there for a few minutes. I can see them while I'm out there. They do not care that they are sitting in a travel lane. They don't care that other people can't get by them. So I get in the car thinking to myself, 10% chance they'll notice that I need to get out of here and move their car on their own. Well, of course they didn't. And they didn't intend to. It's two young men. They look to be about 19 or 20, both black American men. And I thought to myself, how is this going to go? And it went exactly as I predicted it would. I rolled my window down and I said, hey guys, would you mind moving up a little? I just need to sneak by you and get out of here. And this is what I get. For those of you just listening, I'm staring sullenly. I get nothing back. I get a glare. I get a don't fuck with me look. And then the guy rolls his window up while he's looking at me giving me that hard stare like I'm giving the camera right now. And slowly, slowly starts to move up. He's offended that I asked him to move. Then the other one, got something to say, bitch. Got something to say, bitch. Mm-hmm. Oh, but that was just one incident. Do you really think that that's the only time that's happened to me. And the only reason I'm saying this right now is because I'm a racist and that is how I characterize all black people and I think they all act that way. So if you do, you shouldn't be watching my show. You're not smart enough.
This is common. When another one happened just yesterday. So we're sitting here. This is Kevin's studio in another location because uh, I happen to be visiting him this week. And I forgot some necessary supplies when I drove down from Vermont. So I said, I'm going to go over to the CVS drugstore, get a couple of things, come back, run over yesterday, got two items in my hand, and I go up to the cash registers. See, it's not the grocery store this time, it's the drugstore. And there's a line of people, and there's one checker, one live checker. You know that, folks, you know this now, especially if you live in blue areas. Everybody's understaffed, but it's now normal, and you can't complain about it. So even during peak times, like dinner time, they'll just have one person on there. But that's just normal. Just normal. And there's three open self-checkout registers. And I'm trying to decide what to do because I'm crunched on time. I don't like the self-checkouts because they so frequently have an error and then you have to wait for someone to help you. And the only person who can help you is the one person they have working that shift who's staffing a live cash register. So I look over at the self-scans and I see an elderly gentleman standing there. And he's trying to scan his stuff. And I'm watching what he's doing. He's not doing anything stupid. He's not making mistakes because he's a dumb old person. It's very easy to put a thing across a laser scanner. Okay? And every time he does it, he gets his beep, beep, you know, something, something's wrong. Right? And the thing starts flashing. And, and the program voice says, don't worry. Help is on the way. And then it keeps going. Don't worry. Help is on the way. Help is on the way. Help is on the way. <laughs> yeah, it's like... Brr, brr, beep, brr, brr. Of course, help isn't on the way, is it? Because the one checker doesn't even move her eye over. She doesn't even look out of the corner of her eye to give a visual acknowledgement to the gentleman that she understands that the register is stuck and that she will be there, let alone say anything. No acknowledgement at all. That's also normal. So this, this man was much nicer than I, than I am. In fact, too nice. He took his purchases, went back, and restocked them on the correct shelf. I watched him do it, and he walked out the door. You know what I would have done? I would have left him right the hell there and said, you have lost my custom. Good afternoon. So he's gone, and I'm thinking to myself, I'm on a time deadline. Which way do I go? I decide to risk it with the self-checkout. So I go over there, scan my first item. Maybelline Great Lash Mascara. <laughs> and my second item goes, Please scan item. Now I scanned the item. It was the act of scanning the item that made it yell at me and tell me to scan it. So I follow its instructions because robots give us orders now and I remove it from bagging area. And I scan it again, just like the machine tells me to do. I'm like, okay, screw it. So I leave that register because again, the live checkout girl, no acknowledgement, not even a head turn. So I go back into the line to wait for her to serve me personally. Then, after all this happens, I see a woman come sauntering over another employee. And I do mean sauntering, casually strolling. 
because nobody lights a fire under her ass. And she's got, I'm going to do her. I'm going to show you the look on her face because I want you to understand why I reacted the way I did. She's ignoring all of the customers, but she's going through each of the three self-checkouts, apparently doing some sort of reset or, you know, manager check-in or something. And she's doing this. Very self-conscious, that haughty expression, but making sure that she makes no eye contact with anybody. I probably should have known better, but this is what I said. And I can only ask you to trust me that I'm telling you the truth. I'm very polite to service workers. I'm not rude to them. I'm very nice. And I said to her in this tone of voice, excuse me, ma'am, would you be able to help me with an item that that scanner won't recognize? I'd like to use it. Yeah. I'll tell you what happened in that moment. I froze. Why did I freeze? Because there was a mismatch between what she spoke in her words and what she was communicating with her face and body language. She was communicating arrogant, narcissistic hostility. She was commute and she meant to do this. This is not just the way she is. You know when people are putting on affect and she was putting this affect on. She was telegraphing that she did not wish to be disturbed. Yet she was telling me she could help, but she wouldn't even look at me. Yeah. You know people like this. You've all seen this behavior. I froze because that mismatch, I know this sounds ridiculous and I didn't, I didn't throw a tantrum in the store, of course, but that is a mini, mini, mini little trigger for me because it reminds me of my mother. It reminds me of the mismatch between her tone and her body language and what was coming out of her mouth. The contradictions. To keep you unstable, to keep you off your feet. That is why people do this. That's why they do the contradiction. So I'm sitting here and probably five seconds passes and I, my shoulders are tensed up. I know other people won't react that way, but I do react that way and I know why. And after I don't say anything, she goes, I answered you. So I walk over there and she walks away and I said, oh, so it's going to be like that, huh? That's when I lost my temper. Going to be like that, madam, huh? Ignores me, knows that I can't use the thing, walks over, opens up a new register, takes the next person in line and makes a big show out of being excessively deferential and sweet. Oh, hello, how are you today? Guess I'm really bringing them in today. I mean, just unbelievable. Okay, I've gone on long enough with that story. Have you experienced this? If you have, leave a comment under this video. I'd like to hear your stories or if you have anything to say about it because I don't believe I'm the only one. We're coming up on a break here. Um, I want you to come back after the break, of course, because we're going to be talking about California Senate Bill 107, which would make California a sanctuary state 
for so-called trans kids, not just kids in that state, but kids who come in from out of the state. It is much worse than the Vermont bill that we discussed a few months ago. But I also wanna remind you, subscribe to us on audio. We've got audio only content, but you can also get this show just to listen to while you're washing your dishes and go into your grocery stores. We are on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora. Check us out and we'll see you after the break. You know how podcasters are always asking you to hit the subscribe button? Well, this is us asking you to take a minute right now and be sure you've hit subscribe on your favorite video platform. Click that notification bell too so you never miss our newest content. And don't forget to subscribe on audio. We have audio-only content that you won't find on any video platform, so don't miss out. Do you like Disaffected? Do you like it enough to help pay for it? We'd love to have your support to grow and maintain this show. Donors get special access to our monthly Zoom hangouts. They're off-camera and unscripted. We talk about what you want to talk about. There are two ways to join. Patreon users can go to patreon.com disaffected or visit subscribestar.com slash disaffected. Folks, as we fight inflation, you can't be pro-insurrection and pro-cop. Bringing down gas prices is a big part of the job. You can't be pro-insurrection and pro-democracy. You can't be pro-insurrection and pro-American. And here's the good news. Gas prices have dropped every day this summer. That's more than 40 days in a row. Donald Trump lacked the courage to act. We now have 40,000 gas stations in the United States where the price of gas is $3.99 or less. The brave women and men in blue all across this nation should never forget that. How do we get the price down? Okay. For those of you who couldn't see that, those were two separate videos of Joe Biden that were released by the White House on the same day. If you cannot see the visual, I urge you to go online and see it. I want you to see it. I know you can probably hear a difference, but you need to put your eyes on it. Unless you're blind. (laughs) This is wrong. I know the difference that lighting and makeup can make, obviously. And you better be thankful for that I don't come on here au naturel. This is more than makeup and lighting to me. This looks like, I'm going to, well, it looks like a digital creation. It looks like what we call a deep fake made by artificial intelligence. Do I think it could be? Absolutely, I think it could be. Do I know that it is? No. And don't be shocked. Don't say conspiracy theory. You already know that deepfake AI technology like this exists. That's uncontroversial. Do you remember that you know that? You do, because you've seen it before. So it's not a crazy conspiracy theory. We already know that we have the technology. So the question becomes, why would they do this? And I'll just tell you, his eyes look wrong in that second video. They... They don't just, they look, yes, they look glassy and doll-like, and there is a demonic cast to it. Yes, that is the vibe that you get off, demonic. 
But it isn't just that. The structure of his upper eyelids actually looks different, and it doesn't look like he has a different facial expression or that he is lit differently so that his features look differently. It looks like a different kind. It looks like a different contour. Uh, the motion isn't quite right. Uh, well, we know he has balance problems, so we have to stir that in. It's complete uncanny valley. It's Mr. Roboto. I, it could well be real, but it could well be fake. So I want to know what is going on in the White House. This, this should scare you. This should scare you. Because here are two possibilities I can think of, and I'm sure many of you have many more. You are free to share them in the comments. Why would they put out these two videos on the same day? Even if this is real and it's not a deep fake, they must see what we see. The contrast is so startling. I can only think of two things. One, the White House needed a specific statement from Joe Biden on that day. They needed it that day. They felt they needed it for the news cycle, but he wasn't able to do it. Maybe he was having a dementia moment. Maybe he was sleeping. I'm not joking and I'm not being glib or insulting. I'm being quite serious. Do you think for one moment there aren't times when he's acting out kind of like a toddler? That's what people with dementia do. You have no idea what's going on behind closed doors when the cameras are off. This is absolutely a possibility. The other one I can think of, if it's a deep fake, is that this is a test run for them to see what they can get away with and what they can't. They wanted to um, it's a trial balloon. They wanted to see the public's reaction, and then they are going to calibrate how they do this, how they use the technology, and when they do it next time when they really need it. There may be other possibilities out there. Leave a comment. Now we're going to talk about Senate Bill 107 in California. We covered House Bill 659 in Vermont several months ago, and this was a bill that would take away a parent's right in the state of Vermont to say no if a child who calls him or herself trans or is identified by a teacher or a social worker or a doctor as a trans kid, it takes away the parent's right to say no to puberty blockers if the child wants it. Think about that. That's astonishing. This would actually allow the state of Vermont to give the legal authority to a physician or a nurse practitioner or whoever it is to inject your child with the same chemicals that we castrate sex offenders with. This bill in California is worse. There's a really good article on Wesley Yang's Substack uh, that you should read. This article was written, it's a guest post by Lisa Selen Davis. I'm going to read a little bit because she sets it up and then we're going to go through the bill itself. Quote, a new bill moving through the California state legislature is drastically raising the stakes in the cultural and legislative battle over gender-affirming care. SB 107, simply known as gender-affirming health care, would allow children being denied puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, or gender surgeries in one state to come to California to receive those interventions in defiance of parental or medical opposition. Custody agreements in defiance of custody agreements and in defiance of laws that prohibit access to these services in that child's home state. SB 107 essentially turns California into a sanctuary state for trans-identifying kids, allowing them access to gender medicine without a mental health evaluation or even a diagnosis 
of gender dysphoria. It openly flouts several key provisions of the Constitution of the United States, strips out all gatekeeping for those seeking medical interventions for gender dysphoria or to affirm a trans identity, and annuls the authority of any parent who would stand in the way. Written in response to laws in various conservative states prohibiting what its backers call gender-affirming care, SB 107 is a vast overreach that will set off a flood of civil litigation and could pose a danger to young people seeking gender medicine in an environment in which the basic standards for ensuring that only those who truly need such intensive interventions have been prohibited by law. Let's look at the bill itself. I'm going to it's a complicated bill. I have read the whole thing. I haven't done a complete line by line parsing. That's why I suggest that you go uh, and read that article on Wesley Yang's Substack. Uh, but I picked a few parts out. First part, notwithstanding subdivision B, blah, 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 refers to California law, a provider of health care, health care service plan, or contractor shall not release medical information related to a person or entity allowing a child to receive gender-affirming health care in response to any civil action, including a foreign subpoena based on another state's law that authorizes a person to bring a civil action against a person or entity that allows a child to receive gender-affirming health care. I know that's a, that's a lot. Um, stay with me. I am going to translate this into plain, simple English. Just stay with me. This means that California doctors under this law can, in fact, I think they would be required to defy subpoenas, court subpoenas from other state courts if someone in another state, like the parent in another state, sues the other parent, the parent who wants to trans the kid, because that other parent wants to trans the child. So California law is saying, you will not answer subpoenas, you will defy the court from the other state. California is actually proposing to tell doctors to deny court authority from other states. This is a violation of the U.S. Constitution, and as a refresher, let me give you Article 4, Section 1, referred to as the Full Faith and Credit Clause. Full faith and credit shall be given in each state to the public acts, records, and judicial proceedings of every other state, and the Congress may, by general laws, prescribe the manner in which such acts, records, and proceedings shall be, shall be proved and the effect thereof. This bill gives California co courts automatic emergency custody of your child. Automatic. If a number of conditions are met, including the presence of this child in California within six months of the initiation of a legal proceeding, or a parent who is president in California, it is unclear. The language gets really abstruse. California is also telling cops, law enforcement, district attorneys, not to cooperate with arrest warrants against an individual from another state if that individual is trying to trans a child. Quote, from the law, the, not the law, the, the bill. Section 819 is added to the penal code. It is the public policy of the, of the state, that is California, that an out-of-state arrest warrant for an individual based on violating another state's line law against receiving, providing, receiving, or allowing 
their child to receive gender-affirming health care is the lowest law enforcement priority. The lowest law enforcement priority. Next section. California law enforcement, and look at your screen. I added the bolding. The emphasis is added because I want to draw your attention. California law enforcement agencies shall not make or intentionally participate in the arrest of an individual pursuant to an out-of-state arrest warrant in violation of another state's law against receiving, providing, receiving, uh, I'm reading it as it's written, I know they have extra words, or allowing a child to receive gender-affirming health care. Next section. No state or local law enforcement agency shall cooperate with or provide information to any individual or out-of-state agency or department regarding the provision of a lawful, gender-affirming health care performed in this state. Let's put this into plain English. Joe and Jane, I'm going to use the example of Idaho, but I do not know if Idaho law prohibits transing children. This, I'm using it as a stand-in, but I'm not saying that I know that for a fact. Joe and Jane and their son Billy live in Idaho. Joe and Jane are getting divorced. Jane wants to trans Billy into a girl. Joe, the father, objects. In Idaho, where they live, suppose that it's illegal to trans children. So Jane takes Billy to California. Jane has an arrest warrant out for her arrest from Idaho cops for trying to trans her child in violation of Idaho law. This California bill, if it passes into law, says that no cops in California will arrest her, they will not cooperate with extradition, and they won't cooperate with the Idaho police or an Idaho district attorney. California will shelter people, like parents, from arrest warrants or criminal charges for breaking the child abuse laws of other states because these bans on transing children are child abuse laws because transing children is child abuse. If you want to slice your kid open to help her achieve her best life, just take her to sunny California. Hell, start the cutting in Idaho and then just finish it in California. No one's going to turn you in. And if they do, no one's going to ship you back. This is motivated by narcissistic psychopathy. Normal range people are not motivated to hurt children this way. That's not something that normal people do. Lawmakers with normal moral compasses and personalities do not try to break the U.S. Constitution by legalizing child mutilation and indemnifying child abusers against prosecution. Lawmakers who have consciences do not openly invite knife-happy parents to come huddle under the warmth and light of their lamp beside the golden door of California. It is a sick parody of the legend written on the Statue of Liberty, a reversal, an inversion of truth, and a lie. It's satanic. You don't have to believe in a personified Christian devil to see that what we call the devil is real and he is walking among us. These are the bill sponsors. Senator Scott Weiner, Senator Tony Atkins, Assemblymember Lori Wilson, Senator Susan Eggman, Senator John Laird, Assemblymember Rebecca Bauer-Cahan, Assemblymember Mia Bonta, 
Assemblymember Sabrina Cervantes, Assemblymember Matt Haney, Assemblymember Ash Kalra, Assemblymember Alex Lee, Assemblymember Evan Lowe, Assemblymember Christopher Ward. You are doing Joseph Mengele's work. You are butchers, you are serpents, you are liars. You belong in prison, and you deserve to burn in hell. See you after the break. You know how podcasters are always asking you to hit the subscribe button? Well, this is us asking you to take a minute right now and be sure you've hit subscribe on your favorite video platform. Click that notification bell too, so you never miss our newest content. And don't forget to subscribe on audio too. We have audio only content that you won't find on any video platform, so don't miss out. Do you like Disaffected? Do you like it enough to help pay for it? We'd love to have your support to grow and maintain this show. Donors get special access to our monthly Zoom hangouts. They're off camera and unscripted. We talk about what you want to talk about. There are two ways to join. Patreon users can go to patreon.com slash disaffected or visit subscribestar.com slash disaffected. Welcome back. This section is called, and I'll show it to you right here. Does like BPD even exist? We're gonna talk about borderline personality disorder because it's one of my favorites and it's one of your favorites too. We've talked about the cottage industry of borderline personality disorder denialism. Lots of therapists, especially women who are informed by feminist politics, have called borderline personality disorder a garbage diagnosis. They say that it's just a label to shut women up who don't obey. You know, you know that sticker or that button or that bumper sticker that says well-behaved women rarely make history? Who do you think likes that as much? Who do you think likes that the most? <laughs> Check it out next time you see it. Evaluate the personality of the person wearing it. Tell me what you think. And I note also that my mother would, would say this about any conversation that criticized a woman for anything a woman ever did. So this is certainly simpatico with what borderlines would like to see. But it's going on not just out in the field, it's going on in the academy too, the, the Serious Mental Health Research Academy. This is an article from Psychology Today that gives an overview of the, the, two, the major disagreement about borderline personality disorder. And there are reasonable disagreements to be had. The main one, and this is not restricted to borderline, this is, uh, this is a conversation happening in the academy and among researchers and clinicians about personality disorders as a whole. And the DSM recognizes 10 of them among three clusters. So it's, it's a broader conversation. But the main disagreement is whether we should evaluate and diagnose personality disorders in what they call a categorical way or in what they call a dimensional way. 
The current DSM, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, classification system is categorical. That means it counts up, in this case, it counts up nine symptoms and says that you have to have five or more of those to qualify for a diagnosis. And each symptom is basically a yes or no question. It's a binary question. Does this symptom exist or does it not exist? It does not give any room for it's there 50% of the time, etc. There's no halfway mark, for example, for fears of abandonment. It's either yes or no. A dimensional approach has more nuance. It doesn't just count numbers of symptoms in a yes or no way. It looks at how severe each symptom is, not just is it present, but if it is present, how severe is it and what is the context in which that symptom is expressed? How long does it last? And in what ways do these symptoms overlap with other disorders or other mental states of mind that are not disorders, that might be situational and normal emotional reactions, or other conditions that are not personality disorders. The dimensional approach makes an awful lot of sense to me, and it sounds closer to the idea that I've expressed that if, if, if someone can be said to have a cluster B personality disorder, if we recognize that kind of personality structure in somebody, most people don't fit one Simon Pure type, right? Well, she's borderline personality disorder and not anything else and no symptoms from any of the other three personality disorders. Um, or he's a narcissist and he's not anything else. He has no borderline traits, no psychopathic traits, et cetera, et cetera. Categorical. The majority of people, in my view, who show cluster B structure in their personality tend to show a mix from more than one of the four allegedly discrete disorders. I have a great deal of, of intellectual sympathy for the dimensional approach. I think that it probably would be a step forward. The problem for me is that I think that many of the proponents of the dimensional approach have a different goal. What they actually want to do is blur boundaries so much that it is impossible to say that there is such a state as disordered with borderline personality, for example. I do believe that that is the main motivation of some of the, of, of the proponents. Um, and to the extent that that's the case, that motivation is a political and an emotional motivation, a feelings motivation, not a facts one, and not one that is thinking even though many of the people claim that they're doing this because they think this is better for the patient, I think maybe unconsciously, it's because they personally don't like it. They have a political and an emotional aversion to borderline personality disorder being real, especially feminist women therapists. Yeah. Um, so let's turn to the Psychology Today article. And I'm going to try to be fair. I think I disagree with the author. There are some places where she could have, she could have clarified better. I'm going to try to be fair, but I do have some criticisms. And it starts with the title. And the title is itself a tell. Is it finally time to eliminate the borderline personality diagnosis? Hmm, just asking. The author is Susan Krauss Whitborn. Quote, 
For the past decade, mental health professionals have debated whether personality disorders fall into categories or dimensions. Rather than being an obscure academic controversy, this debate has practical ramifications for the mental health of millions of people around the world. It's correct. Quote, on the one hand, having a diagnosis on the books can benefit patients who need documentation for insurance purposes. The contrary view is that the categorical diagnoses artificially place mental health conditions into bins based on what are, in reality, variations along dimensional scales. I also agree with, with that, um, but it is, I do not agree that the only value of having a categorical system is being able to bill for insurance purposes. No, no it isn't. There are people who genuinely agree that the categorical approach gets us to a better place and helps more people. I don't know if that's true or not, but it is not honest to say that the only reason people are advocating for that is so they can bill it for insurance. But for the most part, so far, so good. We'll go on. Quote, in this ongoing dialogue, no personality disorder has received more attention than borderline personality disorder. The term borderline is often used in a pejorative sense to refer to people who seem overly clingy and unstable, lacking boundaries between themselves and others. You may know someone who you or others refer to in this fashion, generally in a negative light. The question is whether it's justified to draw a circle around an individual's entire personality, provide a label and leave it at that, end quote. Right away, there's a problem, and there's some nonsense in that. Ms. Whitbourne is questioning if it's justified to, quote, draw a circle around an individual's entire personality, provide a label, and leave it at that. What does that even mean? Would she say that it was also bad practice to label a psychopath and leave it at that? How about a case of narcissistic personality disorder, particularly if it were one in a man? Would that be a bad thing too? Would we be labeling him unfairly? Or let's move on to another cluster, another, uh, another kind of disease. How about obsessive compulsive personality disorder, which is distinct from obsessive compulsive disorder. They are not the same thing. OPCD, O, obsessive compulsive, OCPD, the personality disorder, is a, it's not cluster B, but it is really a bear. I've known people who've had spouses with it, and it, it appears to me to be just as difficult to live with them. Or how about schizotypal personality disorder? Or how about actual full-blown schizophrenia? Are we doing a harm? Are we doing a bad? Are we doing an ableist? If we draw a circle around their entire personality, give it a label and leave it at that, I could be wrong, I'm guessing, but I don't suspect that the author has those kinds of strong feelings, principled feelings, against labeling and diagnosis in those other cases. I think it's particular to borderline, and I suspect because it, I suspect, but cannot know, that it is because of woman-to-woman -woman sympathy and excuse-making. And if the author is like other women practitioners who have this point of view, I suspect that her sympathy and empathy for the suffering of women with borderline personality disorder may be going too far. Labels matter. Labels do work 
that must be done. We cannot get rid of labels. We can talk about how frequently we apply them and we can talk about holding them lightly so that we are so that we can accept a challenge and reevaluate our judgment and we need to do that. But we also need labels. Labeling people is not a per se act of harm. Does that surprise you? So I know it surprises some of you because I see some of you reacting. I see what you write. You're labeling. Yes, I am. You know what this is? This is an e-cigarette. It's a nicotine vaporizer. It is not a washing machine. It's not a car. It's not a personal lubricant. I'm labeling it an e-cigarette because that is what it is. I need to be able to communicate to you what this device does so that you don't believe it washes clothes. Duh. <laughs> labeling is not reducing a person to just one thing only. The author's phrase, just leave it at that, it, it seems to me it's something she just inserts, not something that necessarily actually happens or exists as, as much as she might say. And again, what does that mean to just leave it at that? She goes on to discuss how many researchers wanted the new DSM, the DSM-5, to scrap the categorical approach and go for a more dimensional approach. Fine. She likes the new ICD-10. That's the intern. ICD stands for International. Uh, do I have it wrong? Well, I've got the initialism wrong. It's either no, it's ICD International Classification of Disease or Disease Classification System. It's the international version of the U.S.'s DSM, um, and it takes a more dimensional approach. That approach, still, they decided to include what they call a specifier for severity, particularly with borderline personality disorder, which I agree is important and more accurate than a yes or no approach. But she's not happy, it seems to me, unless I'm reading this wrong, that they kept borderline personality disorder as a concept at all. Quote, unable to leave the borderline personality disorder category in the rearview mirror, the ICD-11 authors created a borderline personality specifier based on the DSM-5 diagnosis. That phrasing is so telling. You can almost hear her eye roll, can't you? Unable to leave borderline personality disorder in the rearview mirror. This is, this is an example of begging the question. People get this wrong a lot. It, it, um, and, uh, begging the question is not raising the question. Begging the question is assuming that something is proven and true and that we all agree with it, when in fact it's not. It's a question that needs to be raised. She just assumes that it's, it's a self-evident truth that we need to leave borderline personality disorder in the rearview mirror. Based on what? She doesn't tell us. Why should we leave it in the rearview mirror? What is the specific objection? Are you saying that you, you do not see clients in your practice? You do not observe people who fit the personality style that today, right now, we call borderline. Unstable people prone to paranoid persecution fantasies, self-harm, camouflaging themselves as victims, clinging to other people excessively, desperate not to be abandoned, and prone to rageful outbursts? Are you, Miss Whitbourne, telling me that you do not see this, you do not observe these people, and you do not recognize that there is such a personality type? Because you may not be saying that, but if you are, I'm telling you, I don't believe you. I know that you do, and you know that you do too. 
She also cites research that tested the borderline personality disorder hypothesis using a dimensional, not a categorical system. And apparently, in the study she cites, none of the study subjects received a borderline personality specifier. Okay, Jan. You really should read the article through because there's a lot more detail than I can share with you in this segment. And I'm actually not sure that I understand all of her arguments very thoroughly. So if I got, a, if I got pushback and got correction on this, I'm happy to take it and I'll, I'll take my lumps and, and we can talk about it on a future show. Um, but the, her article chimes for me with so much of the pushback I've seen for years, particularly by female practitioners, against the idea of borderline personality existing at all. Now, some of the research seemed to show that there was nothing distinguishing what we call borderline personality behaviors from what they call negative affectivity and negative affect found in other illnesses that are not BPD. Well, in, in one sense, that's not surprising because anybody can act loopy. As I've said before, personality disorder traits, almost all of them are human traits that, that we will exhibit at one point in our lives or another. They're not personality disorder traits. A few of them are, but most of them are just human psychology traits. But really, this just doesn't ring true to me. I don't believe that my perception of being able to see borderline personality structure or other people's perceptions, that we have them simply because we've been taught by tradition that they exist. I do not believe that. I, I'm sorry, I, I, I believe my lying eyes. Something else is going on here because many of us see these people and there are so many cases where there really isn't any gray area at all. There really isn't. My mother's an example of that. I mean, you have to take my word for it, but if you met her, I guarantee you, you'd find exactly the same thing I find. We're not mistaking a bad day for somebody or a bad depressive month for a totally made up non-thing called borderline. We're not, sorry. Um, as we move to close up here, I want to share some audience comments uh, from last week's show. Some of them were regarding the conversation, the topic I brought up about the similarities and differences between complex post-traumatic stress disorder, CPTSD, and borderline personality disorder. This one comes from Omara67. Hi, Omara. By the way, I see that you have been a loyal viewer and listener since the very beginning. Um, it's a delight to see your name. Thanks for still being here. She says this, I feel the same about your, your assessment regarding CPTSD and borderline. I've never had a real fear of abandonment as I understand it from a borderline perspective. I've never frantically tried to keep someone from leaving. By the time I've split up from someone, I'm ready for them to go. I also never cut or otherwise self-harmed. But the invisible triggers have been there over the years. The emotional outbursts and all were there. And I've talked with her before, and, and like, like me, she has had some of these behaviors and traits, and that's what she's referring to. These days, I know enough about this stuff and myself to have it under control, but once in a while, I'm, blind, I'm blinded by an outburst, and that's rare now, which is great. Um, someone else asked a question. I can't read this person's name. It's hysterically funny, but it is so bad. I, I just can't read it. It starts with Hunter Biden. He says, Joshua, do you have any insight into why transgenders pick such weird names for themselves? Fern Feather? What the hell kind of name is that? I think it's very simple. I think it is so simple that you think that there must be another explanation because the simple one can't be it, but it is. Trans is fantasy. 
These people are living in pure, unadulterated fantasy. Why wouldn't they pick a fantasy name? Why wouldn't you call yourself Skyhawk of Grayskull? Of course they would. They're living in fantasy. They have fantasy names. QED, done. There's nothing else to explore. Olivia Miller said, Bullseye Josh, I had a narcissistic mother and I read some of the literature, Cleckley and Hare. Those names are good ones. You should read Cleckley and Hare. I'm surprised that I didn't understand earlier. Of course, narcissists are occupied with gender identity. That's their entire personality. They really feel their lives are threatened by any disturbance, even stickers. And she was referring to, you know, can they really be this emotionally activated by this stuff? Another one from Terry Cook. This is a little funny. You know, Joshua, I have always wondered why you wear a full-on shirt and jacket on your show, especially since you are always burning up. You know, I'm always hot and stuff. Except today, you'll notice. Kevin's studio is air-conditioned. <sighs> when you do the show from your home, you wear a simple V-neck sweater and you look fine. I realize you want to look professional for the show, but it's a podcast, dude, and you don't have to work that hard. Yes, I do. <laughs> I think you should have some long sleeve t-shirts made up printed with a disaffected podcast logo on the chest. And if it catches on, you might even be able to sell them as merch. Well, we're talking about merch now. Keep your patience, kids. You know, honestly, I do have to wear a suit jacket. I do have to look this way. I don't want this show to look like another podcast from my living room or from someone's den. There's a million of those out there. Dress the part for what you want, right? Um... I'm going to keep doing it, even if it's hot. That's why. There's a point to it. There's too much casual attire. The entire default in our society, now it used to be you didn't leave the house until you were put together. The default now is if you are put together, you're being affected and over the top. I'm sick of it. I want to see people looking nice. That's why I do it. This one from Delaney Stevens. Delaney, I hope you're listening because I tried to respond to your comment but YouTube, when I sign in as myself, sometimes treats me as spam, and it just deleted it as soon as I put it in there. I do want to talk to you. I'm going to read Delaney's comment from Delaney Stevens. She says, Hi, Josh and Kevin. I've been officially diagnosed with borderline personality disorder and subsequently undiagnosed with borderline personality disorder after I buckled the fuck down and did the work on myself to purge the crazy. Congratulations, madam. And now unofficially with complex post-traumatic stress disorder by all licensed professionals, whatever that may mean. I'd love the chance to talk with y'all about what I conceive of the BPD-CPTSD split and overlap. Long story short, my perspective, having been assigned both sides of that token, is that complex post-traumatic stress disorder is just functionally borderline personality disorder that you can cure. I guess I'll reach out to you guys directly somehow because this is a topic I'm actually really passionate about and happen to have an unofficial thorough education. So if you guys are interested in exploring it in detail, I'd love to be your gal and I would love you to be our gal. Delaney, please send me an email to us at disaffected.fm. I would love to talk to you and you sound like fun too. Um, to end... Um, I'm going to give a little attention to a personality disorder that might feel a little bit neglected by Papa from time to time. Histrionic. <laughs> and we're, this is going to take us out. We're going to end on a histrionic note. I give you a clip of a... I give you a commercial from Saturday Night Live when it was still capable of being funny. And before we play it, think about this. Everyone 
Almost all of you know someone like the character Kristen Wiig is portraying in this parody commercial. You have seen this person. And it's funny, and it's over the top, but it's not a joke. What you're about to see here is, in fact, a classic textbook presentation of histrionic personality disorder. She can stop every conversation just by entering the room. She can change your night with a single look. And if you ask her what she does, she'll tell you, I'm a dancer. Red flag. <laughs> She's gorgeous, wealthy, a free spirit. And her ex-boyfriend was a club promoter. Red flag. <laughs> she knows exactly where to go, exactly what to do. And all her friends are dudes. Red flag. <laughs> She's exquisite, but she also lived in Vegas for 11 years. Red flag. <laughs> She's funny, but not funny like ha-ha. Funny like yikes. <laughs> and her pinky nail is way <laughs> That's a major red flag. <laughs> red flag perfume by Chanel. The only See you next week, everyone. Men. I'm crazy. Red flag smells like trouble.